standard issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here. Welcome to the first of our International Women's Day 2020 podcasts. There is loads of good stuff coming up, including Helen Lewis talking about her new book, Difficult Women. And there's loads of other stuff, but you might understand that I'm going to keep it short because although International Women's Day is about celebrating women in all their many forms, women who are full of snot and struggling to speak are not necessarily pleasant to listen to. So, just to say, the first interview, Jen and I went and spoke to the brilliant Amelia Bullmore because if International Women's Day is for anything, it's for celebrating women that we love. And we absolutely love her. We talked about loads of great stuff, including This Life, which she was a writer on, about her work with Val McDermott, about her work with Sally Wainwright, so that's Scott and Bailey, Happy Valley. I mean, what great things to talk about about how you write violence against women in a responsible fashion. And finally, about Sonia, because of course, you can either watch it out on Twitter for all our other podcasts that are coming out this week, or, you know, you can press subscribe because that would save you the hassle of of looking out. Okay, I'm going to go and get under a blanket and shiver. Thanks for listening. Hi, Jen and I are here in the National Theatre, um, which you may pick up a tiny bit of theatrical noise in the background, with actor and writer Amelia Bullmore. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for meeting us. My pleasure. Do you know, I tried to plan this, I just said to Jen, I tried to plan this interview, and you have so many kind of connections where you work, who you work with, it was really difficult to order. Mm. So I thought I might go straight in there and actually just ask... Something that doesn't really link to that much other stuff, which is that This Life is back on TV. I heard that. And you wrote some of those episodes. I did. I wrote two episodes in the second series. It was the first writing for TV I did that got made, so it was was a very big deal, that job. Have you watched them since? I think I've seen bits, and I think they stand up really well. Because they very much were of their time, and things that are of their time sometimes date fine and sometimes date awfully. I think they were very borrowed from as well, particularly the shooting style, that roving camera yeah. and that you, that feeling that you were in the flat too, that these were your friends. You know, when they got out of bed, they didn't have clothes on. If it, if it was a situation where you wouldn't have clothes, they didn't. Yeah. And it, it had a kind of, uh, it had a very believable illusion and the, you know, the characters were fantastic. So I think the way it was shot used a lot of natural light the dialogue was very natural and overlappy because you had it wasn't one shot close up close up close up so it had a freedom that I think has been borrowed a lot I think a lot of things now we're so used to things looking like this life I think it doesn't look as dated because it it was a bit of a game changer I just wondered when you obviously when you wrote the episodes did you have any idea like what a big deal it would end up being well, it was already a big deal because it was the second yeah. series. Oh, so so were, Amy Jenkins wrote the whole of the first series. And when it came to the second series, uh, I think she chose not to write the second series. So they got a load of writers in to do two episodes each. And some of the writers were tried and tested and some of them were not. And I was not tried and tested. But I had a calling card script about a lawyer... It was unbelievable. The script that I had, that was my sample of writing script, looked like I knew about the law because of the research I'd done for that particular script. And Tony Garnett read that script and incredibly 
got me in and said, you know, you can, you can write character, uh, you can write dialogue, uh, and basically we can teach you everything else. So it was like going to the gym, it was like going to a writing gym. When you say it broke barriers, I mean, it really did. I mean, from the point of view just of, of how it portrayed gay men, yeah. it was quite sort of groundbreaking. And women? Yeah. I, I don't know the name of her character, Daniela Nardine's Anna. character. Anna, Anna. yes. Because she was pretty horrible. <laughs> Wasn't that? Yeah. Or was she? I don't know. Yes, or was she? Yeah. she? She was magnificent. She wasn't a pleaser. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but she was irresistible. She was very clever. She also knew herself pretty well. Not that she could fix herself, but she knew herself. Yeah. You know, there's a fantastic conversation between Anna and Miles, which I can't remember, and I'm, I'm misquoting it. Not mine. Maybe Matthew Graham wrote it. It's about her being a fuck-up. She says, it just seemed honest, and you'd have to see the scene. But it's a very... It's a marvellous scene. It's very, very simple. It's very true. They're very sore. They're very hurt by each other and just stumbling their way through. And it was brilliant. So I think that was the thing with her, that um, she was competitive, wasn't she? She and Miles had a kind of... Maybe a bit, you know, they fought and they were really, really attracted to each other. I, I, I didn't read Amy Jenkins's Bible for this life, but I've been told that the Bible, which is the document which conjures the world before a show is written. Right. So she, before she got the commission to write it, she created this document, which is Bible, because these are the people, this is the world, this is what it feels like, um, this is what they care about, this is how they sound, this is how it looks. And apparently that Bible was just astonishingly brilliant which is why the thing got made so she knew from the off what it was she wanted to write and then really you know when you're writing the second series you've got all the videos haha they were videos at the time you've got all the videos to watch the first series and that's when I knew because I hadn't seen I had a I think I had a very small baby and I'd watched bits of it but I didn't I hadn't followed it slavishly and when I was offered the job, they said, uh, you know, look at the videos. And I just watched them one after the other. We didn't even say binge-watching them. No. So I watched my videos one after <laughs> the other. And I thought, God, these, this is brilliant. I didn't realise what a good job I'd got until yeah. I watched those videos. And then I, I thought, my God, this is an incredible job. Is that quite intimidating? Because actually, now already I'm leaping around. Because Leap. You also took over writing... Scott and Bailey from Sally Wainwright, which again, look from the outside, looks like that might be quite intimidating to take over someone who has crea- created this world. Well, I was weaned very carefully and lovingly. I think Sally wrote all of series one and two, and then tapered. I was tapered in, and she tapered off. So, I reckon part of it is. She thought I could do it, and she liked Craven, which I'd written on the radio, which was a crime series on the radio with Maxine Peake in it. So she'd listened to that, and, and I think I have a knack of mimicry. And so I could... I knew what the show was. I knew what it was like to live in Sally's sentences and characters, and so I could... You know, I had to make train carriages that fitted with her train carriages. That's the deal when you co-write. Yet, do your thing, but not so much your thing that 
it doesn't flow. Yeah. And, you know, I can do that because I just can do that. So, you know, we'd all done it. We all knew what the yeah. show was. And if I got stuck, I would ring her up and say, remind me what the what's the deal with Scott and Bailey? And she would say what it was and I'd get back on track. So she was really, really supportive. It is a really great series. And it's very much, I would say, it is the British Cagney and Lacey, which I mean... Well, that's what they set out to do. I that's mean, what that's that first conversation was with Saran and Sally Lindsay when yeah. they came up with it. I think it was a glass of wine. Why isn't there a British Cagney and Lacey? That was the conversation. Yeah. And then it went through lots of different... Uh, who, you know, who could write it. And it came, it came together when they got Sally Wainwright on board. And then when she got together with this amazing uh, retired um, de- detective chief inspector, detective inspector, Di Taylor. And they had this incredible rapport. And Di Taylor told her war stories and crime stories. And that's when Sally thought, OK, the point about this is to do the procedural stuff really nerdishly accurately that's the thing that's the that's the deal that people aren't going to be slammed up against a wall or held by the scruff of the neck it's not going to be grandstanding uh police stuff it's going to be we're really going to get inside what this job might look like and um in fact police officers like it they think it's or rather, they don't dislike it as much as the others. Yeah, well, I have to say, I mean, as a journalist, I, I, I don't think there's, I've ever found something based state on State of play journalists like. Well, the, exactly that. You were in state of play as well. The, um, God, you've done a lot of stuff you get everywhere, don't you? Well, 56, <laughs> you can pack it in. Because you always see something that you go, oh, that would never happen. Yeah. But you have to. Like, oh, I know. And, you know, when, you see act, when I see actors portrayed, I yeah. think, oh, it's not how it is. Yeah. You know, we're not all... But like that. But it has to serve the plot to, yes, to some yeah. degree. Because I think why, when I say about it being Cagney and Lacey, it's not about two, two characters who happen to be women. It's about two women, or actually more than two women, because there's a lot of other yeah. characters in it. But they have lives that are distinct from the lives of the male. And you go home with them. Yeah. And the trick was that uh, in a scene, you shouldn't ever really have a scene. It's a good rule of thumb that you shouldn't have a police scene and a domestic scene. It's all interwoven. So you bring to the police scene something that you know about where they're at personally or emotionally or psychologically. And then where you're home, you know where they're at with their work head on. So it's that, which is what happens, you know, you take work home with you. So it's that um, dovetailing. So you couldn't take out, you couldn't take out the uh, domestic scenes from Scott and Bailey. The rest and have the plot, yes. Yeah. yeah, very much so. Now, we'll stick with crime yeah. and move on to Traces, which is probably still on Sky Alibi now for people on Sky Yeah, Go. I think it probably it's is, yeah. yeah. I have to say, I, I settled down to watch because it had Molly Windsor in it, yes. and she is amazing. Yeah, she is. She um, is. And then when I saw, written by Amelia Bullmore, based on an ideal Val. by Val McDermott, I thought, oh, man, I'm in safe hands here. <laughs> And I really was. It was really great. So I, my first question would be, we love Val McDermott. Yes, and, um, she's marvellous. How, how did that come about? It was Val's idea. Val wrote this book called Forensics, which was um, non-fiction. 
and it was to go with a, an exhibition that the Wellcome Trust had about forensic science. And it was different case histories and different conversations with different forensic scientists and what their field of expertise was and case stories. And unexpectedly, because it was, you know, a book to go with an exhibition, and it sold, I mean, it sold like hotcakes. Everybody loved this book. Red Production Company got hold of it, and they thought, where's the money? (laughs) Could that be a drama? Uh, So they talked to Val and said, could you, how could this book become uh, a television drama? And Val came up with an idea of how it could, said she didn't want to write it suggested I wrote it so then I met Red and they showed me Val's idea and it was all about forensic science which I didn't know anything about and based on a strong collaboration Val has with Dundee with the work of the University of Dundee so she said well you better go up to Dundee and you better meet these women who are doing this work in particular you know a fantastic forensic chemist and a fantastic forensic anthropologist um and so I went up and I met them and they taught me stuff and uh, they helped me get... I mean, they absolutely held my hand through getting the science right. And then bit by bit, we built up the story and tried to, you know, f- weave together. We really wanted the science to be as accurate as we could get it. You know, you, you, got, you have to compress it because it's, it's painstaking and laborious, so... Sometimes things happen a little faster than they would, but we tried to go a little bit like with Scott and Bailey to think, no, just get into the detail of it. Don't shrink from it or hurry it up. In fact, beckon the audience in to be patient enough to get into a toaster. What you know, isn't a burnt toaster actually much, much more interesting than you think it might be? So that's, that was the plan. One of the things that really impressed me with Traces, and it's something we talk about a lot because we talk about TV a lot, and what I would describe as, fe- what we describe as feminist TV, yeah. is that, I mean, you really nailed the ending. Because one of the reasons I've traditionally not enjoyed crime drama is that the mystery or a whodunit has to be everybody as a suspect. Yes. You know, in real life, yes. 50% of the time it was her husband. Yeah. You know, Whereas, I don't want to give the ending of that away, but what I would say is it was an ending that I felt reflected what would probably have happened in real life in that situation. So my question is, do you feel a responsibility to do that, or do you, do you serve the story best first? Mm, a responsibility to, to write in a feminist way. Or to show violence as violence yeah. actually is. There were big conversations about what you see and what the POV is and who might or might not get kicks from what you show. And I think that in the edit, it's so cryptic this, I think I know what you're talking about. So I think you're talking about what is glimpsed in terms of what occurred on the night, on the fateful night. Right. And so, yes, you have to not shrink from grim criminal probabilities but you also have to not show them in a way that anybody could get off on yeah. of course you can't you can't guard against people getting off on stuff because somebody somewhere is getting off on a yogurt advert you yeah. know so um, <laughs> <Poor sod. laughs> yeah mm, Dan, oh, that's what they mean <laughs> <laughs> but 
so yeah, there were big conversations about that and differences of opinion. It really comes down to particular shots. Sally Wainwright is very, very interesting on this because in Happy Valley, when the poor girl who is kidnapped and terrorised, um, you only ever see her POV. So it's the POV of the hunted. Yeah. And, of course, when it's the POV of the hunter, you are um, in danger of you're showing something terrible but you're showing it for thrills and spills as well you can't it's all very muddied but then there's another factor which is what's the truth of pov so you have to have the pov of someone who is alive yeah unless you're doing something from beyond the grave so even though that's going to take you into difficult areas because you might be the pov of the hunter in that scenario you might have to be that in terms of story logic. Then you have to pick your way through, well, of the POV of the hunter, what do we show? It's a minefield. I, I think as well it, it kind of fits in with that. I think there's, a, especially a, at the moment, a, a, a wider range of things that show the impact of crime rather yes. than just the crime yeah. itself. And, and you, your story was about a crime that was 20 years old and how it continued to haunt yes, people that yes. were affected by it. And for such a long time, crime was about, bang, that person's been killed by a hammer. Who cares? Move on. The repercussions of those crimes were never, ever shown to us. And I think things like Unforgotten, things like Happy Valley have started. I mean, but the funny thing about violence is Happy Valley, when the first episode, the first series, when the van, the van. Uh, uh, when Sally Wainwright goes, not Sally Wainwright, when Sarah Lancashire goes into the house and gets Charlie Murphy out and she is beaten really badly and basically collapses in the street. The Daily Mail was really angry about it because it said, oh, it's so violent, it's so bloody. And I thought, it's no more violent than other stuff. What they don't like about it is she's covered in blood. That's what they're thinking violence is, and that's right. They mean it was so ugly. It was so. It was so hard to look at, and so exactly. But that's what violence is. Yeah. So, and I think Sally. I wouldn't dream to speak for Sally, but I think she would say, "Look, this stuff happens, yeah. and uh, you 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 have to show it. Yeah. And then you've got choices about how you show it, but uh, the violence of it fuels everything that." Yeah happens to the Charlie character yeah. that the Sarah Lancashire, she's called Catherine, so I can't remember what the Charlie character's called. Is she called Anne? She Anne is Gallica. called Anne, yes. yeah. So, but you, you need to see what is stoking Catherine, you know, in a sort of Greek avenging way yes. through the story, the, the vengeance she must wreak on Tommy Lee Royce and for what he did to her, not just to do with Anne, but to do yes. with her daughter. So, if you don't see her horror, if you don't see the horror, I don't see... It's weird, isn't it, yeah. to say that you should spare some people some things because it's nasty. So you said there were a lot of conversations about POV with traces. Um... Only to do with that particular section we're yeah. talking about in yeah. Weird Code. <laughs> Is that like... Is that sort of fairly normal now, do you think, for those conversations to take place? Because that is only quite a recent development. Yeah. I think it's, it's completely normal. You know, now, if, you're, if two people are having physical contact, there's going to be very careful conversations about that. If violence is done to somebody, probably particularly if it's 
a man being violent towards a woman, there are going to be big conversations about what needs to be shown for story, what is straying into unnecessary and possibly gratuitous. Everybody's, not just people don't want to do it, but people are also scared of being seen to have made bad choices. So you want to get it right. You also don't want to be browbeaten into being so careful that you're not even following... Sally is a mighty... You know, she's got mighty certainty about what she's setting out to do. So she just knows what she wants to do. And she would fight tooth and nail to get those shots in. Anyway, she's directing it, so she is an auteur. She's a true... What you're watching is true authorial work. We bloody love her. (laughs) Honestly. Yeah. I've met her, and every time she makes me slightly anxious because I genuinely think she's like somewhere close to a genius yeah. and, and I, it, it makes me a bit uncomfortable that I'm going to say something stupid in front of her because she's so disarmingly normal and I know that people it's a very showbiz thing to say isn't it oh they're so normal I've met loads of people that people have told me they're so normal and they're not yeah. but she really is just really down to earth and yeah it's quite disarming and then also not at all normal in that who normal can write that volume yeah. of work of that quality at that speed yeah. with that immersion, with that unbelievable focus up at night that's not normal yeah. it's a, you know, she is a very very unnormal normal yeah. and she just says things that it doesn't occur to you till about 30 seconds after she said them that it was hilariously funny, <laughs> she said it in a really flat, yeah. pan way yeah we are big, big Sally Wainwright fans got to say, your dialogue in Traces, going back to Traces briefly, I bloody love it. Oh, great. People say things that people actually say. Great, great, great. And what I, was, I was trying to explain this to Mickey. I was like, people in your thing will start a sentence and they'll, they'll say, and anyway, and then they'll say, what am I talking about? And then go back. And that's actually how people speak, but it's not how people ever speak on TV. Is that, is that, does that come easy to you? I'm afraid it does. I, I mean, well, no, no. I mean, to be, you know, to be really honest, yeah. it comes back to knacks, right? You might have a couple of knacks, and I've got a couple of knacks, and that is one of them. Yeah. I, it's to do with, it's the, actually, it's the same as being a mimic, because it's to do with ear. Yeah. And, and I just had it. I had it as a kid. I have an ear. So I, I, li- I love rhythm. You know, in acting, I think comedy is all about rhythm. I think you, I look at a page and I can hear the rhythm. You can see what there's a great big lump there of a speech and then tick, 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 tick. And when I go through a script I've written, I have an idea of how the rhythms are working. I can hear the rhythms. It just is a freebie. So I love, you know, that's the bit I think, often I think I can't do this. I don't know what I'm doing. This is too much. I you know, all those things. But when it comes to making people talk, that that isn't a problem. I love well, it. Well, great. That's, C- the bit carry that, on doing that's the bit that makes me think, ha-ha, <laughs> I'm a writer. <laughs> that's when, you know, that's when your fingers gallop yeah. along the keyboard. Well, that's an interesting question. Are you a writer? Are you an actor? What if Which came first? Well, if I go back to child me, I think they are there. They're both there. And I think it's the same thing. Because it's... I mean, it's not the same thing. <laughs> I mean, there are lots of things that overlap about it. Uh, how people talk, how people behave, what, what, you know, what's going on. Um, listening, copying, 
reenacting. So I wrote a lot when I was little, and I impersonated people on the telly. Uh, I impersonated my mum's friends. I wrote little stories. So I think whatever it was, and it probably is mimicking or being other people, it probably is just being other people. Um, whether you write down the other people or you take somebody else's writing down of other people and try and make it sound like you just thought of it, it's the same area. You're very good at accents as well. That's the same thing. Yeah. That's the sa- so really, that's just one... It's like there's one thing I can do and I've made it... I've squeezed a lot of... It's like I've got 60 meals from one bag of lentils. <laughs> See, I am rubbish, absolutely rubbish at accents. I was going to tell you a story about Val McDermott, but I, I, it only really works if it's in Val's accent, and my <laughs> Scottish accent is so appalling that I certainly won't commit it to tape. Every story that I go, I start off and I'm like, no, it's the, I've lost it, the accent is too bad. Sticking with Sally briefly, I mean, you, happy, you did, you've done Happy Valley yes. with her, you've done Gentleman Jack yes. with her, and, so that's three, and Scott and Bailey, is yeah. that three, the three times you've worked with her? That's not uncommon, in fact. I don't think there's anyone that's ever just been in one Sally Wainwright thing. You, it, she, she seems to have, essentially, a, a troupe, as I would call, like a band, a theatre troupe, a band of actors that she calls on, so you tend to work with the same people again. Is that, that, is that helpful? Well, it's fantastic, isn't it? You know, it's brilliant, because it means that um, you've got a bit of a shorthand and... And just the, the feeling, just the idea that somebody thinks you might not mess it up, not just once, but again and again. Yeah. That's, that's, anybody would like that feeling. Yeah. Uh, and, and you also think, well, that's incredible because I know that I'm going to have really good things to say in another Sally Wainwright thing. Yeah. So it, it's, it's okay, speaking incredibly of, good. Speaking of which, the last time we, we spoke to her... Um, she was still writing Gentleman Jack yes. series two. Yes. Are you in that? Can you say I, one way or the other? I don't know for sure, but I believe, I hope I am, and it's been suggested to me that I am. Okay. I really hope so, because I have to say, you dressed up like a Christmas bauble <laughs> made me spit, actually do a proper spit my tea out. It was just... How long did it take to get in that get-up? Uh, it took quite a long time, but I, I mean, I just loved I love costumes I love costumes one of my favorite bits of the whole thing yeah. is is getting the costume I mean I just love it going shopping for costumes trying on the rail talking about costumes yeah. going for a fitting in a costume house uh, I just love the whole thing and then getting dressed every day I even want I will even go through the script thinking okay Scene 27, that's story day four. That's my blue dress. I'll actually think before I go to work what I'm wearing that day. I will, I will campaign in Scott and Bailey. I would sometimes say to the costume designer, costume team, any, any chance uh, Jill could wear that smashing blouse with the um, dots on it in the briefing scene. I just love it. So, so I've never, ever worn as many clothes as that. And so Tom Pye, who designed it, he uh, decided that Eliza Priestley would be a clothes horse and that she was clothes mad. So he did. I thought, I, I went along to the fitting at Cosprop, which is this big costume house, and I'd read the part. I thought, okay, I, she's, this is, she's great, this woman. 
I know exactly what the rail is going to, the rail that your costume, your yeah. prospective costumes are hanging up on. I thought, I know what the rail's going to look like. It's going to be brown, it's going to be grey, it's going to be black. That's fine. It's a very, very good part. I will take it on the chin. And I got to Cosprop, and the rail was like a rainbow. <laughs> I couldn't believe, I thought it was somebody else's clothes. Yeah. Bonnets, capes, things with names I've forgotten, bits of lace that go over bits of velvet, bits of just endless... Uh, incredible things and then some of them were original and some of them were made so I loved the clothes and I loved the silliness of the clothes I mean they are just stupid really, I can't believe that was really. ever considered fashionable I mean even if I look back at the 80s I think the 80s was more fashionable than some of the nonsense that you have to wear yeah. and those those I mean that's not that's not your head they the, the, the front bits are Sue Newbold the makeup designer specialises in doing very complicated hairdos very quickly and she kind of clips on those things that look like um, brandy snaps. So you've got, you've, got, you've got sort of brandy snaps of hair that go in a rose. And the first two are your own. I mean, this is me. Some of the, you know, a lot of the women had their own marvellous hair. But I had sort of two brandy snaps that were mine. And then the rest of the brandy snaps just clip on and clip off. And then because you've always got a mob cap on and a hat, you've really got nothing going on at the back. But you never take your mob cap or your hat off. That's like Sarah says about when she's on stage, she doesn't bother brushing the back of her hair. (laughs) (laughs) Where should I go now? Coronation Street. Yes, love those costumes. Actually, I had a feminist argument about those costumes, yeah, because um, I was 26, I think, or maybe 27 when I got that part, and she was a, you know, a firebrand. She was a, a sexy, outspoken, big mouth. And so the clothes... Um, but I, you know, I had just... I, the job that I'd done before for years was touring around in a feminist theatre company. I was all baggy dungarees and stuff. And so I was stealthily trying to get Steph a bit more, a bit more covered up. And I actually had... I was called in to see the producer... And he said, look, what's happening with Steph's clothes? You know, they're getting a bit um, boring. Oh, oh, and, so, and so they got more um, lycra then played a much larger part. And I remember thinking at the time, actually, fair enough, really, yeah. because that was the deal. But then it went full circle because I had a body, a leotard. It was the time when... You wore a leotard. Yeah, the body. You wore a body or a leotard. So sometimes Steph would be wearing a leotard under a miniskirt or something. So I had this leotard on, which was white. And in the old days, when you filmed Coronation Street on a... I think it was a Wednesday, the live filming was shown on monitors all round the Granada building. Anyway, so I had this white uh, leotard on. And I think I had a lacy hoodie or something over it. But it might have been open anyway. Because it was on the monitors all around the building, it came back to the floor that there was that you could see my nipples, not the you, you could see the shape of my nipples through the leotard, and I had to, so during the course of filming I got covered up, so it was weird. I was sort of both uncovered and then covered up in the course of that part. Not that I'm obsessed with costumes or anything. <laughs> What I find really interesting about Coronation Street, and I say this as someone who doesn't really watch soap operas, is that there's actually a generation of actresses. Some of our best actresses, Sarah Lancashire, Julie Hesmond-Hausch, Saran Jones, yourself, 
who all came through Coronation Street. What, what's it doing? What's it doing right? How is it managing to, do, to be an effective well, training school? Well, that is such a good question. I mean, the man who gave me my part, no longer with us, a man called James Bain, was the casting director at Granada. So some of it is good casting directors. Then they're writing. They've always had really good female characters. Always, always. So you've got the writing, and then they're looking for people who don't have, you know, who are starting out. So they're making good, good choices, good gambling choices on people. And then once you're in it, because it used to just take three weeks to come out, it's probably probably quicker now, but you can see. So you can see what you did wrong. You can see that you're too big. You can see that you're too slow. You can see you're overdoing. You, whatever adjustments you need to make, you can make on the job. So if you've a mind, you can really learn very, very fast. So maybe you could say that it's a kind of... Um, perfect storm of the writing's really good for young women then they're clever about who they cast and then the people they do cast know how lucky they are and realise the opportunity they've got to learn not just from watching themselves but from all the people doing it who are absolute masters of it yeah I spoke to Sophie Thompson yes. last year and she because she did EastEnders and she said it was it was like jumping onto a moving track yeah and it was probably she she actually no matter how much she knew about acting at that point, she learned so much more from that. And it's just so much work every day. Yeah, and there's something about the speed, which is you can't get hung up on it. You know, you've gone, you've done it, there'll be more. There'll be many, many more scenes to do. Right, now we can't avoid it any longer. Uh, We're (laughs) going to have to go back to the conversation about accents. Oh, yeah. And talk about, about Sonia, because we've been mostly talking about drama, and actually, the first time... I became familiar with you was through comedy um, Big Train Brass Eye you did um, Jam uh, Blue Jam Jam. yeah but also probably most famously um, I'm Alan Partridge now you look nothing like (laughs) Sonia do people recognise they do sometimes they do do. because without that insane hair yeah is it a thing that you will ever tire of talking about, do you think? Or is it a joyful thing when people come up to you? And- oh, no, it's a joyful thing. Uh, but, you know, like, uh, it's a very occasional that people do. And it's a long time ago. But even at the time, I didn't uh, get spotted much. I think it took me quite a long time to figure out that, you know, the, the woman on Scott and Bailey was... Alan Partridge's girlfriend. Yeah. It took me a while to sort of make that connection. Actually, I've just thought I've, Alan Partridge has only ever had two girlfriends, and now I've interviewed both of them. Yeah. Um, Monica Dolan, who is in Alpha Papa. He, he's only ever had two girlfriends you've seen. You've seen. Absolutely. Don't forget all the millions of lovely ladies yeah. who've been lucky enough <laughs> to spend time with Alan. Is that something you ever revisit and watch? I think I might have watched a couple of clips. What's amazing about comedy is that you didn't... And we, of course, at the time, YouTube wasn't even a thing. And I didn't... You, nobody knew that comedy lasts much longer than drama. As in comedy, you know, you can send somebody a clip of something which will make them laugh. If it made, if it made you laugh ten years ago, it will make you laugh today. And it can be a quick thing, and you can just share it and send it. So it has a life of its own. And it has a life in pieces, and drama doesn't have a life in pieces. So are you really going to commit to watching the whole of 
edge of darkness again. It would be well worth your while if you did, but you're more likely to go back to a clip of something or an episode of something. And so it's great to see, you know, you can find the big train sketches. You can, you know, you can think, what was that sketch called? And you can type it in and there it is. Uh, so it's, it's wonderful to see. Uh, it's, yeah. It's funny you say that about Big Train. I, uh, having watched it, a lot of it on telly, but of course in those days, if you missed it on telly, that was it, you didn't see it again. I mean, it wasn't like it could go to the iPlayer or catch up. And I discovered only relatively recently a genius bit of Big Train that I'd never seen before, uh, which is the sketch called The Working Class, which is like the birds. And every time... I can't remember who it is now, but every time she looks out the window, there are more men in flat caps in her garden. And it's so yeah, funny. Yeah, I remember but, that. But, like I say, in, in those days, you just didn't... If, if, you, if you were out that Friday, then you didn't see it. Yeah, that's it. Um, is, is comedy something that you... I mean, I, obviously you enjoy it, but is, is it something that you... You have seemed to move more towards drama now. Was that a deliberate no, decision? No, no, none of it's deliberate. You, you know, you just something comes along and you do that, and then because of that, something a little bit like that comes along and you do that. And before you know it, you haven't done anything yeah. funny, capital F funny, for a long time. And you know, the whole crime thing—that's an accident. That's because if you've got ideas out there you've got three ideas out there and in one of them somebody gets killed that's almost certainly the one that will be green lit just because of the appetite and then then you just give it a go you know you give it a go no there's no not intentional at all and sometimes you know I think god you know I'm, I'm not doing any comedy comedy anymore and I haven't been in a play for ages you just, there's just no point getting yeah. you, you just what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, it just, you don't, you're not in charge of, yeah. you are in charge of what you say yes to, but you're not in charge of, if you're lucky enough to have things come yeah. up, you're in charge of whether you say yes or not, but you're not in charge of what rolls up. It probably yes. looks like I've chosen, yeah. it probably looks like I'm somebody who said, do you know, I think I'm really more dramatic. <laughs> well, that's a good thing, though. I, 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 in many ways. Any, any drama worth its salt has got funny bits, yeah. and anything funny worth its salt has got anguish in it I mean you know they're all oh, mixed up absolutely yeah. Sonia is in six episodes that's all that is isn't it yes it's like, mm. it's like and she's not towers. in it much you know she's not it's, in it much it's like 40 Towers in that it's, it's cultural impact is way more than the, the size that it actually is if that makes sense there's such a small amount of I'm Alan Partridge and yet I've probably talked about it in my life more than the, <laughs> the thing that's actually on uh, do you want to know a little bit about how that came about then Always. I'm always interested in hearing Alan Partridge's Well, I can only tell you the bits I know, because obviously yeah. I didn't write it or come up with it or anything, but I do know, and I think I'm not out of turn saying it, that their first idea for his girlfriend was that she would be uh, a regional TV presenter. And they, it was going to be Julia Davis, who, of course, would have done that completely brilliantly. And then they thought, thing is, a local regional TV presenter would see Alan. She would see what he was. So we need to find a woman who believes Alan's version of Alan and doesn't see 
Alan. So she can't be as savvy as... Um, and there's got to be something in it for this woman, like being here or some sort of upgrade, some perceived upgrade for her. Uh, and this woman has got to have a kind of wonky enough perception to think that Alan is a good idea. So that, like I say, that's not my thinking. That was the thinking that they did. And then thought, okay, well, what if Alan met or even something like, not exactly purchased, but what if there was a, he went to the Ukraine? And in fact, I did go for a couple of days to Kiev. Just thought I should just have a look, see what they're wearing. (laughs) (laughs) And nail that accent. Is it anything like what Sonia was wearing? Yes, it is. Um, And in Kiev airport, there was a big advert. Obviously, it didn't say come and get married here, but it, it, it more or less said there's an, you know, there's an arrangement to be had um, of, of a, you know, a, a lovely-looking young woman. And I can't remember what the wording was, but I did think, hang on a minute, this is basically exactly the area of... So then, anyway, that's, so that's, what, they, that's what Armando Iannucci and Pete Bainham and Steve Coogan came up with, how this woman, when they were creating, who could... Who would be delighted to be going out with Alan? So I think I think really it's a bit of reverse engineering. So who would be thrilled to be with Alan? And then bit by bit they came up with this photo fit of the psychological profile of this girlfriend. So they saw Julia and then they thought she would be too savvy and too knowing. And then they tried me out. And I think they said at one point, could I improvise in Ukrainian? I said I didn't think so. Anyway, and then, um, and what they did is, obviously they had all the scripts written, and you would go in and you would rehearse the scripts, and so you got Felicity there, and you got Simon there, and you got the regulars there, and you'll rehearse the script as written, and then they'll feed in a little bit of improv, get you to do a little bit more, and it's filmed, and then they go back, and anything that's cropped up that's handy is added in and shape. But they basically, you know, they, it is a completely impeccably scripted thing although longer than it needs to be because they want to have the option of stuff they don't need. And then you, it all builds up to these live days. So you do stuff that's shot on location, which gets fed in, played on a monitor on the day. And then those, those studio days um, were really, really intense because you do in front of a live audience on a Friday night and you're, you know, you're all made up and you're all in your costumes and the warm-up act does their stuff and then you're on and you might get a couple of takes at it, and you've got to be, you've got to hang on to what you did in the way that you did it when you were rehearsing and not be um, seduced by the fact that there are people there who are making a noise. You've got to think, you've got to just keep it camera size, even though you're in a stage show. Yeah. I don't think I realised that it was filmed in front of a, a live studio audience. I think part of that is because everyone always goes on about this, the infamous canned laughter yeah, and, it yeah. Stuff, yeah. and it you're isn't. like, it's become this myth that exists. Yeah. You're like, no, it's not. There's that, yeah. That's actually genuinely... Yeah, I suppose it, 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 yeah. lo- it looks canned because, of course, when they play something in that was filmed on location and it's got laughter over it, you watch it and you think, well, there wasn't an audience in the art gallery yeah. or on the motorway or yes. in the car park, yeah. was there? Yeah. But, but they play it. Yes. OK. Yeah. yeah. So it's like a human yeah. reaction. So, you know, it's, it's 
it's really scary, but then it's really thrilling and exciting. But, you know, you go on, you've got one pop at it, maybe two pops at it. I think you've got one pop at it with pickups, but you are very, very, very well rehearsed. And um, Steve Coogan, you're, you're acting with somebody who's been that character for years. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. And actually still finding ways to be innovative yeah. with him. Yeah. What is coming next for you, Amelia? Have you got another project that you can actually tell us about? Because I know. Yeah, I've got um, a couple of radio plays to write. Yeah, I love I love writing for radio. This year, I think because of things that started last year, I've got to kind of dispatch things that were begun before. So I think it's more or less a writing year. Although fingers crossed that Eliza Priestley does get dressed up again please god uh, i would love please. that and um and then a thing called vienna blood that i was in a little bit last year oh i saw a couple of those. massive wig wonderful yeah, costumes you're also wearing yeah wonderful costumes, yeah, wonderful yeah. costumes. Yeah. they are original i mean they are absolutely original the, the, the young fella in that oh uh, yes it's suddenly everywhere i know absolutely everywhere i can't remember what his name is but matthew beard yeah because um, I watched a couple of the Armando Iannucci's uh, 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 Avenue... Oh, I haven't seen that. Avenue 5. And he's in that, is he's he? in that as well, yeah. Because um, I do review TV, so I try right. to watch yeah. a bit of everything, but sometimes um, there's just too much. There's just too much for television yeah. without thinking there's stuff on the radio that I should probably be watching as well. Or yeah, so it's hard, isn't it? As well. Yeah, so, and then maybe Traces too. We're not sure, but... Maybe. I mean, I'm definitely writing episode one, but they might need the rest. So then that's, that would be the year. But then next year I've got this sneaky plan, which is just have absolutely nothing. Nothing. No, not have a year off. Have an empty dance card. Oh, wow. So that, so that you can... So if something pops up... A year of saying yes, essentially. Yes. Yeah. A year of being in a position to say yes. Yeah. Might might be a year of um, cupboard tidying and <laughs> craft activities yeah. because maybe there you know you, there might not be uh, stuff on the go. But be I'm determined to. It's greedy because it's great to know that you've got stuff to do. But equally, it would be a thrill to go back to a kind of younger state of I don't know. I don't, I don't know what might happen this year. A nice yeah. position to be in, though. Maybe I'm not in that position. I'm just fooling myself. I don't know. I think you might be. I don't know. Yeah. I, I didn't wear it once for three months. Do you um, like it? I liked it a lot more than I thought I would, yeah. to be honest. Did you I, choose to not work for three uh, months? I, I took voluntary redundancy right. so from somewhere so I could afford to not work. Yeah. And I took the option to sort of decompress a bit. Yeah. And... Yeah, I mean, it helped that it was summer yeah. those three months. I think if it had been winter, they might have been a bit bleaker. But, yeah, I was amazed because I thought I was a person who would get up to mischief. Yes. Like, uh, idle hands and all of that. But actually, yeah, I really... I got on top of a lot of stuff that yes. had been spinning out of control. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, which was nice. Yeah, it's not actually that I want the time off. It's more that I want to be... Free, yeah, to be able to do something. able to do something that I didn't even know existed. Yeah, like could you could you go and do a workshop in Sheffield uh, next week? I could actually. Yeah, 
yeah, sort of thing. There's only theatre directors in Sheffield. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, yes. my pleasure. Standard issue for all women.